0: ultimately carry us through the summer a series entitled cruciform that word simply means having the shape of a cross the cross is the great jewel of the christian faith it's multifaceted as you spin a jewel it shines with new brilliance and beauty it's it's kind of like a stained glass window which refracts light so that if you're staring at a stained glass window and you move just a little bit to the left or the right you see the stained glass shine with a new brilliance and beauty to it uh, that that it shined Uh, didn't shine with before you moved just a little bit to the left or the right. The cross is the great light refracting jewel of the Christian faith, you might say, that the goal of this series is very simple. It's to spin the jewel, to see the radiance of that which Jesus has accomplished for us one facet at a time. Coming back to that series title, Cruciform, Shaped by the Cross, The series title itself is is a little bit of a play on words, that if we grab hold of what this series is meant to communicate, we will find our lives shaped by the cross in a few different ways. One, we will find our lives shaped by the cross doctrinally as we grow in our understanding of the various truths themselves, what these uh, various words that we're going to talk about mean. We'll find our lives shaped by the cross personally as we grow in our understanding of how these truths matter in our very own lives. We will find our lives shaped by the cross communally as we grow in our understanding of how these truths matter in our relationships with other followers of Jesus Christ. And lastly, we will find our lives shaped by the cross missionally as we grow in our understanding of how these truths matter in our evangelistic efforts to point people to Jesus. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up this morning to Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, similar to last week. Uh, We'll be all over the Bible this morning, but these couple of verses in Romans 8 will help to launch us into a train of thought, I hope. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you nearby. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. You can have that Bible. Uh, If you don't own a Bible or the translation that you do own is a little difficult to track with. Let me pray for us, and we'll go ahead and we'll jump in and we'll get to work this morning. Jesus... Thank you for bringing hope to the hopeless. Thank you for dying for our sins. And thank you for the beautiful reality that while that phrase is true in its simplicity, there's so much to that phrase. There's so much to unpack. We have an opportunity to do that this summer. And I pray that as a result of our time in this series, and particularly as a result of our time in this morning's text, ...with this morning's topic, that you would awaken our minds to understand the beauty of the facet that we're going to look at this morning doctrinally. I pray that uh, it wouldn't just stay there and become dead orthodoxy, but rather would work its way deep into our hearts... ...that we would understand how the truth that we're going to talk about this morning matters in our own lives. And I pray that uh, you would help to establish this truth that we're going to dive into this morning as a tool that we can use that we can put in our tool belt as we engage with other followers of Jesus Christ and as we step out onto the mission field of life that we engage day in and day out. So, uh, God, would you leverage the truth of what we're going to dive into this morning for our own joy and for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. So last week I mentioned that the first step toward Abandoning the gospel is assuming the gospel. And so my goal last week was to assume nothing. I wanted to be really careful not to immediately begin talking about particular facets of the cross of Jesus Christ without talking about the cross of Christ in a broader sense. But I also wanted to be careful not to talk about the cross of Christ without talking about the Christ of the cross. And so last week we essentially walked through a crash course in Christology, what the Bible teaches about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Having done so, we can now begin to spin the jewel this morning and and in the weeks to come. The first facet that we're going to examine, as James mentioned in a very Sesame Street kind of way, is the beautiful facet of justification. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. I realized, uh, because I'm a dad, I never forget Mother's Day. I'm, I'm not that dumb, but I do forget Father's Day just about every year. And so it dawned on me this morning, oh, man. We're going to talk about the doctrine of adoption at one point in this series. That would have been a really sweet thing to talk about on Father's Day. But I forgot, because I'm a dad and I'm forgetful, so we'll get there soon enough. This morning we're going to talk about the doctrine of justification. And again, my hope is that we not only grow in our understanding of what that word means, but but that it comes to life in our own lives. That it comes to life in our relationships with others followers of Jesus, and that it comes to life on the mission field as God uses us to point more people to Jesus Christ. Whether you you realize it or not, you're constantly surrounded by the doctrine of justification simply by being part of this church. I don't know if you realize that, but whether you realize it or not, you actually sing this doctrine often in this place. And so we sing lyrics like this up on the screen. We have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. It's only by his grace we stand. Or, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Or, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. Or, we don't have to bear the load. We don't have to have control. We are free from guilt and shame. Because when he rose, he left death In its grave, or I worked my fingers down to the bone, but nothing I did could ever atone. But Jesus, you paid my debt. Every every one of those songs is a declaration of the beautiful facet of the cross known as justification. Martin Luther once said, This doctrine, justification, is the head and the cornerstone, it alone begets nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. But according to Luther, there's a lot at stake in not only understanding, but believing the doctrine of justification. And so the question begs to be answered, what is justification? When you see that word in the Bible, when you see that we have been justified, what does that mean? Well, the word justification is a forensic word. It's a it's a legal term, it's courtroom language. One way to help make sense of justification is to understand its opposite, which is why I wanted to start out in Romans chapter eight, verse 33 this morning. Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. That, that Paul here in Romans eight says that the opposite of justification is condemnation. So what, it, what is that? What is condemnation? Well, condemnation is the legal declaration of a person as guilty in the sight of God. Going back to our first parents in the garden helps to make some sense of this, this terminology. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, you can think of it this way. The garden became a courtroom. That God began to execute judgment, sentencing the guilty parties as both judge and jury. Which brings up a pretty significant question culturally for us. Isn't, isn't it unfair of God to judge I mean, isn't judgment exactly what's wrong with religion? Maybe you've heard that as you've engaged people outside of the church. We don't don't like the idea of God as judge when faced with the possibility that we're the ones in violation, right? But when we or someone we love is victimized, we want justice, right? We We want a competent judge to pronounce the guilty party guilty, and we want that competent judge to sentence the guilty party in such a way that the sentence fits the crime. And not only that, it's one thing, think about it this way, it's one thing to declare a desire for a world absent of judgment, but it's an altogether different thing to carry that thinking to its end. Because we're, we're talking then about longing for a society in which murderers and pedophiles are let off the hook. Right, if, if a judge were to sweep crimes like that under the rug, we would demand the disbarment of that judge immediately, would we not? We would declare that judge to be unfit. Now, take that kind of thinking and apply it to God. The more righteous the judge, the more heinous the crime, the more horrific the punishment must be. That uh, You could say an infinitely heinous crime against an infinitely holy God deserves an infinitely horrific punishment. For God to sweep crimes of treason under the rug makes him worthy of disbarment. God's character was at stake in the garden, and so he assumed the role of judge. He pronounced the guilty parties guilty, and he sentenced them appropriately. In other words, to use the language of Romans 8, Adam and Eve stood condemned. You might say, well, that's great and all. What does that have to do with me? We've talked about this before. According to the apostle Paul, it has everything to do with you and me. Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death came into the world through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. As a result of Adam's sin, not only was the harmony of the original creation lost, but the rest of humanity is born into an inherited sinful state. Simply put, we're all sinners by nature and choice. And like our first parents in the garden, our sin condemns us, to use Paul's words in Romans 8. And the sentence that awaits the guilty, the condemned in the courtroom of God, is the sentence of death. And we're not just talking physical death. Though that's true, we will all die a physical death unless Jesus returns first, but also a spiritual death. The umbilical cord between us and God, you might say, has been severed relationally. We've been separated from God. And if we die a physical death in our state of spiritual separation and death, we will experience eternal death, sentenced to eternal conscious punishment in hell as Jesus himself taught in the gospels on numerous occasions. Now here's the good news. The good news is, according to Romans 8, that God, the God of the Bible, is a God who justifies. Look at Romans 8, again. It says it plainly. It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. That God is willing to justify human beings. Well, what does that mean? Well, if condemnation and justification are opposites, and if condemnation is the legal declaration of a person as guilty in the sight of God, then justification is the legal declaration of a person as righteous in the sight of God. So the Bible says God is willing to legally declare people like you and me righteous in his sight. But but how? Job asked that question. Job chapter 9 verse 2. How can a man be in the right before God? On, On what basis is God willing to declare a person righteous in his sight? How can a person move the needle, you might say, from condemned to justified? How can a person get God to say, you are no longer declared guilty before me, but rather righteous? To which droves of people in the world would say that the needle can and must be moved by good works. Which is an amazing thing in and of itself if you think about it, right? The mere thought of absolving guilt assumes a forensic problem before a higher power. It assumes a judicial status before a person's maker that must be rectified. And so much of the world embraces a plan of self-rescue, self-justification through good works. And so we get, we get busy separating the world into good guys and bad guys. And of course, we ourselves are always the good guys, right? The, the problem is that most people make their assessment of themselves not based on God's standard, but, but based on comparing ourselves to people who are more sinful than us so that if, you're, if you are a Christian, before you became a Christian, there's a likelihood that you thought at some point along the way, well, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a pedophile. So I must be one of the good guys. I'm basically a good person. We, we've talked about this illustration before. That, that kind of thinking is like all of us in this room, if we were told, listen, uh, you've been given a mission, which is to jump up and touch the moon. And imagine that, that some of us, we're four-foot jumpers. We could get four feet off the ground, and others of us could only get two feet off the ground. And then imagine in the midst of that that the four-foot jumpers then were to look at the two-foot jumpers and were to begin to beat their chests in self-righteousness as if they'd accomplished something. The, the reality is that all of us in the room have fallen millions of miles short of the mark, of the goal. That's what the Apostle Paul means when he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, self-justification is a completely hopeless endeavor. James says it this way, James chapter 2, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty in all of it. Paul says elsewhere in Romans chapter 3, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. That we cannot justify ourselves before a perfect, holy God. On the basis of our own merits, we stand, to use Paul's language in Romans 8, condemned before God, pronounced guilty in his sight. That, that Self-justification helps to explain a lot of the blame-shifting that you see in the world. A lot of the blame-shifting that happens in the world as we seek to come up with justifiable reasons to explain our sin away, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. You remember the story? Adam goes, well, Eve made me do it. And Eve goes, well, the serpent made me do it. Like there's, there's always someone else outside of us. And we know reading Genesis 3 that it didn't work with God then and it won't work with God now, that, that God is willing to justify human beings. He's willing to pronounce them as righteous in his sight, but not on the basis of their own merits not on the basis of their attempts to explain their sin away. And here's what that means. That means that any religion rooted in man's attempt to justify himself can only lead to condemnation and not justification. Now now think about that. When you think about all of the worldviews outside of Christianity that are works-based. It's a bunch of people living under a rubric that is going to lead to condemnation in the end. It's terrifying. We're not talking about a trial in which we're innocent until proven guilty. We're talking about a trial in which we've already been proven guilty with no hope of self-wrought innocence. And so the question Begs to be answered. And many of you know the answer already. I know that. How can guilty sinners have any hope of being declared righteous in God's sight? And the answer, we talk about it all the time around here. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Paul says, coming back to Romans 3, he says, yes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But he goes on to say, and are justified by God's grace as a gift, That God declares guilty sinners righteous in his sight as a gift of grace. And it's a gift that we receive by faith. That justification before God, forgiveness and right legal standing is not by works. That God is the justifier of the one who has faith. Paul says in Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And to be clear, Paul's not talking about some vague, general, generalized faith. The world is, is filled with people who are faith-filled people. Right? The safe thing to say when you start an organization is not that it's a Christian one, but that it's faith-based. Right? And so you can be faith-based apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16, Paul is very clear. He says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be, here it is again, justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In other words, there are no innocent people and guilty people. There are guilty people and Jesus, the only innocent one who came to save guilty people like you and me, to rescue us by taking our guilty record upon himself. That it's not about you and what you do or don't do. It's about Jesus and what he has done. Something that Donald McLeod mentions in his book, Christ Crucified. It's a fantastic book, by the way. I've never thought about this before until this week. He says this. He says, it was not enough for Christ to suffer any kind of death. It had to be a judicial death involving an arraignment, an accusation, and a condemnation. There's our word from Romans 8. Pilate, he says, the authority established by God is the symbol and executor of a judicial process by which Jesus was formally found guilty and formally sentenced. He was not murdered by an assassin or lynched by a mob or killed in an accident. He was convicted by a judge after due process and judicially executed, judicially condemned in our place. Dealing with the legal demands of our sin. Think about that. From from now on, when you read the gospel accounts, you see Jesus in the courtroom. Think about that. He's dealing with what took place originally in the original courtroom in Genesis 3 with our first parents. that, That has been inherited by us as we are sinners by nature and choice. Paul says it this way in Colossians 2. One of my favorite passages, verses 13 and 14. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. Here it is, with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That If you're a Christian, your record of guilt was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. In other words, When we talk about justification, we're not talking about amnesty. John Stott says, justification is not a synonym for amnesty, which strictly is pardon without principle, a forgiveness which overlooks, even forgets wrongdoing, and declines to bring it to justice. No, he says, justification is an act of justice, of gracious justice. When God justifies sinners, he is not declaring bad people to be good. Or saying that they are not sinners after all. He is pronouncing them legally righteous. Free from any liability to the broken law. Because he himself in his son has borne the penalty of their law breaking. Notice notice what Stott says here. He says God is pronouncing sinners to be legally righteous. In other words a declaration of not guilty isn't good enough we'll just sin again and bring that guilty verdict right back on ourselves right the doctrine of justification declares that jesus not only took our guilt but he's also gifted us his perfect righteous record to hold before a holy god i'm reminded of passages very famous ones like second corinthians 5:21 which says for our sake he made him jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of god or how about philippians 3:9 Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That if you're a Christian, and oh how often we forget this, when God thinks about you, he thinks of you as not only forgiven, but as possessing the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology he defines justification this way he says justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he one thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and two he declares us to be righteous in his sight that if you're a Christian you're not declared neutral in the eyes of God you're declared righteous not because you are, but because Jesus is and has gifted you his perfect righteous record. The righteousness of Christ has been reckoned to your account. As Philip Ryken says, when we receive Jesus by faith, his righteousness counts for us as if we ourselves had lived the righteous life that God requires. That'll preach to the self-deprecating in the room, won't it? You come in this morning, you're not a Christian, you might go, I don't deserve that. How could that be? And the answer is, you're right. You don't deserve that. And that's good news. If it were about deserving, you'd be condemned in Adam. You would be declared guilty before God. God gives us what we don't deserve. This justification, again, is by grace alone. There's nothing we can do except believe, which is why we see Jesus say things like this. John chapter 26 Verses 28 and 29, the disciples asked, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Acts chapter 16, verses 30 and 31, Luke writes these words. He says, then the Philippian jailer brought Paul and Silas out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. The question for every person in this room is this. Have you given up on yourself? Have you given up in depending on your own goodness? Have you come to the conclusion that you cannot make yourself righteous before God? Having declared, Jesus, I believe in you whom the Father has sent. I trust you and depend on you completely for any hope of righteous standing before God. Again, to quote Riken, he says, we are acceptable to God not by keeping his law, but by trusting in the only man who ever did, Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian, you can declare your trust in Jesus this very moment. It's bizarre to me. We live in a hyper under gospel subculture here in the South. And so there are people who are seeking to justify themselves day in and day out through checking the boxes of cultural Christendom. And they're missing it. And so I don't want to assume anything this morning. It's possible that that is true of some in this place. And so I would implore you to turn from that thinking and to grab hold of the cross of Jesus Christ by faith. Coming back to Luther's quote, this doctrine, justification, it's the head and the cornerstone. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour, What Luther means is the minute you abandon salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, there is no church. Having talked about what's at stake from a doctrinal standpoint, you begin to see why Luther would make such a strong statement. But what about some of the personal implications of this particular facet of the cross because the reality is that the church is filled with people who could rifle off a a biblical definition of justification yep got it jesus took my guilty verdict upon himself gave me his righteous record so that god declares me righteous in his sight done but there are also a lot of people who believe that and it has remained in the realm of dead orthodoxy for them and so what do we do with it What are the personal implications of this facet of the cross? I'll just give you a few implications. This list is not exhausted. Number one, we can be confident that God will never make us pay the penalty for sins that were paid for by Jesus. That as his children, we can certainly expect him to exercise fatherly discipline. Like any good dad, God brings corrective discipline into the lives of his children. There's, There's my Father's Day correlation. I did it. But that is drastically different from walking in the fear that you're going to pay the penalty for sins that have already been nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, let me just ask, do you ever struggle with feeling like the guilty verdict still hangs over you? I know some of you do because I've had conversations The doctrine of justification is a weapon to be wielded in the fight to believe that we can confidently fight back against Satan when he condemns us for the sins of our past. We can confidently fight back against that little voice inside our heads because we preach that anti-gospel to ourselves oftentimes. We don't need the help of the devil, if we're honest. Coming back to Romans 8, one last time, the passage we began with this morning, Paul says, Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? In other words, it is God who declares us legally to be righteous in his sight. What Paul is presenting is this question. Who has the authority to supersede God's declaration with their own declaration of condemnation? And the answer, of course, is no one has that authority. God's legal declaration that we are righteous in his sight is the final word on us. Which is why elsewhere in Romans 8, Paul would say, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That that little voice inside your head, if that's something you struggle with, cannot condemn you. The devil of hell himself cannot condemn you. In Christ, you've been pronounced righteous in the eyes of God. Let me say it this way: If you're a Christian. You're never not righteous enough. And the reason you're never not righteous enough is because you possess the righteous record of Jesus Christ. Coming back to Luther, he says, The article of justification is fragile. Not in itself, of course, but in us. He says, I know how quickly a person can forfeit the joy of the gospel. That the doctrine, of justification is a weapon to be wielded in the fight for joy, in the war against the condemning voices of the enemy and the self. That we don't have to claw in misery after functional sources of righteousness. We don't have to claw after that which we've already been given in Jesus Christ. Another personal implication, the doctrine of justification frees us from always feeling the need to blame shift. My wife's here this morning. She would be the first to attest to the fact that even when I know I'm wrong, even when I know I'm in sin, there's this little thing that rises up within me that thinks I've got to duke this one out. I, can't, I couldn't possibly just confess my sin in this moment, I I need to battle it out for an hour, see if I can come out self-justified on the other side of it, find just enough fine print to argue my way out of the conversation if I'm really crafty, maybe even cause her to feel guilty by the end of it. And that's just a a justification misfire. It's a failure to realize, at least for me, that I've already won in the greatest courtroom that exists, namely the courtroom of God. And thus, I can lose in the smaller courtrooms that exist in the world around me. The doctrine of justification allows us to confess our sin, knowing that it's been paid for by Jesus. And thus, we're talking about a doctrine that offers us greater freedom and an opportunity for greater honesty. Thirdly, the doctrine of justification uh, produces in us humility. After all, what do we have to boast about? We're saved by grace alone. That's what this doctrine declares, not on the basis of our own merit, not on the basis of our own intrinsic lovability, not on the basis of our own moral fiber. The doctrine of justification, as I've used this language before, beautifully frees us from enslavement to our fragile human egos. It sends a wrecking ball through the lingering pride in our hearts. Fourthly, The doctrine of justification frees us to do good works out of sheer gratitude to God, not in some effort to earn his favor and love, working in the pursuit of God's acceptance, but rather working out of a position of God's acceptance. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The the fact that, that we've been brought into right legal standing with God by grace alone through faith alone, that actually frees us to do the good works that we were created for as God's workmanship for his glory and our joy. We don't have to do it in an effort to earn his favor and acceptance. We've already been given that. Jesus has already secured that for us. And so we can do good works out of sheer pleasure and love for God. Now, let me, let me just stop here for a very brief moment and say this. I expect that there will be weeks in this series that will resonate with some of us more than others. And so it's very possible that you come in this morning and you go, man, guilt and condemnation are just not the big thing on my radar. Like, I, I don't struggle with that most. And if that's true of you, this facet of the cross might not most readily speak to your heart. And that's okay. We're all different. Some of us struggle with guilt. Some of us struggle with shame. Some of us struggle with fear, and so forth and so on. In fact, there are entire cultures globally that that are different from one another in that regard, right? There are shame and honor cultures in the world, there are guilt and innocence cultures in the world, etc., etc., And the cultural differences allow different facets of the one and same gospel of Jesus Christ to shine uniquely on the global mission field. Coming back to an individual level, we're all different. If this week doesn't prick your heart, just hang in there. As was mentioned in our men's gathering this past Wednesday evening, it was the 10th commandment that brought the apostle Paul to his knees. Romans 7 tells us, Paul says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. That's the 10th commandment. But sin, Paul says, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. That Paul made it through the first nine commandments unscathed in his own mind. It was the 10th commandment that brought the apostle Paul to his knees. On a personal level, I fully expect that there are one or two facets of the cross that we're going to talk about this summer that are just for you. I don't know what those are, but, but I hope you explore week in and week out to find out what that is. In the meantime, this is where I think it's so critical that we include the communal and missional aspects of these facets of the cross that we're talking about. Because this is for all of us in the room. Each of these facets has communal and missional value in every one of our lives. So let me say it this way. Communally, whether or not you personally struggle with guilt, condemnation, self-justification, that there are brothers and sisters around you right this very moment who do. I've met some of them. I know some of your tendencies, some of your battles to, uh, to believe the gospel and what that looks like. This is... This is the facet of the cross that speaks most readily to certain hearts in this room. And if it doesn't speak to you most readily, by you better understanding the doctrine of justification and how it impacts people's lives, God can use you to breathe life into the lives of other Christ followers. And so let me just ask, has God brought any brothers or sisters in your life who struggle with feelings of condemnation? Have you met any of those people in the family of God? feeling like the guilty verdict still hangs over them, we can use this facet known as justification to declare to those brothers and sisters that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. What about blame shifting? Has God brought any brothers or sisters into your life who never seem to own up to anything, always having some justifiable reason for their sin? We can use this facet of the cross known as justification to lead people toward more of a culture of honest confession of sin, knowing that our confession cannot and will not condemn us. And lastly, and maybe most prevalent in our context, has God brought any brothers or sisters into your life who just look tired, who are exhausting themselves on the treadmill, clawing after God's acceptance when it's already been given to them in Jesus Christ? If so, we can use this facet of the cross known as justification to help people rest, to help people live out of that position of acceptance rather than continuing in the pursuit of what they've already been given. Again, one last time, I'll quote Luther. He says, every week I preach justification by faith to my people because every week they forget it. And I would take that a step further and say, we forget it daily even moment by moment. And thus we don't just need to be reminded of it in the context of the church gathered, we need to be reminded of it in the context of the church scattered, speaking this truth into one another's lives. And then lastly, there's the missional aspect of this facet of the cross. How can we use this beautiful facet to evangelize when we engage in the lives of people who don't yet know and love and follow and trust Jesus Christ to which i would say the doctrine of justification has something to say to both the irreligious lost and the religious lost that to the irreligious lost those who uh, to the, to those with a deep sense of sin and guilt without any hope of forgiveness to those who have come to the end of themselves we have a message of hope that the doctrine of justification declares that there is a hope outside of ourselves that there's a god who can and does take away guilt that there There's a God who can and does offer forgiveness. There's a God who can and does declare people righteous in his sight. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And to the religious lost, those who think of themselves as good persons, there are a lot of those in our context. The doctrine of justification declares that God is just not impressed with four-foot jumpers. Even four-foot jumpers are still millions of miles away from the moon. And so the doctrine of justification helps us to bring the self-righteous to the end of themselves. So that they might declare, Jesus, I trust you and depend on you completely for any hope of righteous standing before God. Welcome to the cruciform series. This is what you're going to get week in and week out as we dive into these various facets of the cross. We're going to spin the jewel and we're going to ask the question, week in and week out, how does this unique facet of the cross shape my life doctrinally, personally, communally, and missionally. And and, and I'm convinced that if we will press into this series, that we will come out on the other side stronger theologians, stronger believers, stronger siblings, and stronger missionaries. In a moment, we're going to worship in a number of ways through song. We're going to sing this beautiful facet together. We're going to Uh, worship through the receiving of communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread, dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. I think throughout the course of this series, it's appropriate to invite you to just sit for a moment with the beautiful facet that's been presented to you and just acknowledge before you come and partake of the bread and the cup that legally God has dealt with your sin.